The faithfulness of the Lord is what keeps us confident in difficult days. It is God's faithfulness that, that, uh, that and it's God's faithfulness to his family. Uh, God is faithful and consistent and he acts in the same way at all times, but it's his faithfulness to those who are in his family that gives us security and strength, even in uh, times of uncertainty and chaos. And so today we celebrate his faithfulness. It's also his faithfulness that uh, leads us uh, to uh, seek to honor him. And, and uh, it's his faithfulness that sent Jesus to die on a cross for sinners like you and me. It's his faithfulness uh, that uh, uh, allows the, 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 the days to begin and the nights to end and uh, we get to do it and do it and do it again, and it's a wonderful thing to see God's faithfulness in action. Uh, how many of y'all um, know who Indiana Jones is? Now, is that Indiana Jones? Does anyone not know who Indiana Jones is? Would you go ahead and raise your hand? I know there are some in here who do not know who Indiana Jones is. If you don't know who Indiana Jones is, I want to encourage you to talk to your mama or your daddy, or parents, maybe you need to talk to your children. If you don't know who Indiana Jones is, and, and ask if you can watch the movie. It's a movie. Uh, when I was just a wee little kid, I remember going and seeing the first Indiana Jones movie. I, seriously, I, I don't know when they started, but uh, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't too old. I wasn't married yet, I don't think. I, I mean, that's a long time ago. It's, what, 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, Indiana Jones? 1982. Wow. That was a long time ago. It seems just like yesterday. Yesterday. Loves. Uh, that's a different thing. All right, so anyway, Indiana Jones. So if you don't know who Indiana Jones is, you need to rent the movie. It's, it's good. I remember going to see the movie. Uh, 1982, I, 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 was, uh, I was a sophomore in high school. And I remember going to... 1982, I was a sophomore in high school. That's pretty good. Uh, I, I went to go see the movie, and I remember being captured from the very beginning. Hey, y'all remember the opening scene of Indiana Jones? It's a, uh, a Indiana Jones with his whip and his fedora. He's going through the Amazon jungle, and he's trying to find riches. He's looking for a treasure. He's on a quest for a particular treasure in this open scene, and he goes through, and, and uh, he has a guide who turns on him. But anyway, he, he goes through, and he gets to, the, uh, to the, uh, this, this cave-like setting, and he walks through, and he, and he uh, walks and, and navigates through the traps and the tricks and, and the tumbles and all that kind of thing, and he finally gets to this little gold monkey statue-looking thing. And, and he gets it, and uh, then uh, it gets bad, and a big rolling stone is trying to kill him, and he's jumping and, and uh, avoiding poison darts, and he gets through, and he jumps out through uh, 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 spider webs, and, and he lands when all of a sudden his, his nemesis, his foe, is there waiting with other uh, uh, natives there, and, and so he's in trouble and, uh, and yet he, 
he escapes. So one of my best parts of that scene is when he finally, he, he escapes the, the guys as they're throwing spears and shooting arrows and, and blowing darts at him, and he escapes, and he, and he gets to the float plane. Now, y'all remember it? Y'all know this. He gets to the float plane, and, and as he's uh, running across the field, he's yelling it to the top of his lungs, start the plane, start the plane. But the problem was the pilot was on the pontoon of the floating float plane, a beaver to Haviland, and he was what? He was fishing, and he had a fish on. That was a, that was a hard choice. That, that was a hard choice. Uh, so anyway, he, 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 I love Indiana Jones, and, and I love the, the movies. Crystal Skull was a little silly to me, but I, I, I enjoyed the movies. And, 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 and uh, here's a, a, an adventurer, an archaeologist who's an adventurer, who seeks and and finds riches from times past, and he hunts them down and he finds them so that he can bring them into the present. I love that. It's just great. Well, we're on a journey as followers of Jesus. And the good news for us is that God has provided for us riches beyond imagination, that stretch all the way in our eternal past. And God brings them into our right now present, and he stretches them forward into our eternal future. And these riches are so large and immense, they're unsearchable. Today we begin a series called The Unsearchable Riches And we're looking at what these unsearchable riches are. And over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack them. Can I just go ahead and give you the shorthand? The unsearchable riches uh, of Christ, uh, that's the text today. Uh, But the unsearchable riches, it is Jesus. Ultimately and finally, the unsearchable riches, the the riches that we long to know, the riches that that will um, dig deep into the core of our soul and satisfy us, that is Jesus. Jesus is the riches. And we're going to look at that today, and we're going to look at this uh, every week for the next several weeks, looking at different aspects of who Jesus is and and how that, that provides the riches of eternal past into the present and all the way into our eternal future. So we're going to look at the eternal, uh, at the unsearchable riches. Today we're going to begin it by, begin this series by looking at the passage in the Bible that talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12, but I want you to key in on verses 8 and 9 um, because verses 8 and 9 really are the, uh, the centerpiece of of what we're going to be looking at today. All right, so unsearchable riches. Turn in your copy of Scripture to Ephesians chapter 3. Um, and um, I'm going to read verses 7 through 12, but key in on verses 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 3. And here's what God's Word says. Uh, the gospel, this gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. To me... Who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the 
fellowship. Now, that word fellowship in the New King James, your translation may say something different like plan or strategy. Uh, that is a better translation. So rather than the, mystery, uh, the fellowship of the mystery, it's better, uh, the Greek word uh, is better translated, the plan of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So as we look at this and just just key in on verses 8 and 9, I want us to kind of dig through this quickly and then, then look at some application, two application points, um, big picture and then two application points. All right, so, so uh, here's what Paul is saying. Paul's writing to the believers in Ephesus, all right? Ephesus was a city, and the believers in Ephesus comprised the church in Ephesus. They had city churches, and, and uh, all the believers made up, uh, got together in one place, they made up the church of Ephesus, and Paul was writing to them, and, and it, last week I read some of Ephesians chapter 1, and, and you've heard me refer on more than one occasion to Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to know my favorite chapter in the Bible, it's Ephesians chapter 2, all of it. Um, and uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the apostle Paul says um, that you and I were dead in our sin, but uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been made alive. Okay, and, and that is a, an activity of God's grace, not something that you did, but something that God did. By the way, that's the good news for us. That's just good news for us today, that today you and I are followers of Jesus, not by virtue of what we do or how well we did, but only by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ, God himself who became a man who lived perfectly, sinlessly, and yet went to a cross to die for my sin, who shed his blood so that I might be forgiven. And when I kneel before him and I, and I crumble at the foot of Christ's cross and, and I see that my efforts and my work and my religious stuff isn't going to get me right with God and I give up on all that and I give up on doing life my way and I crumble at the foot of Jesus and his cross, and I beg him, oh, Jesus, forgive me a sinner. Cleanse me. I will give my life to you. And in that moment, God does this wondrous work of amazing grace in me, and, and, and he pours his spirit within me who, who awakens me. And, and gives me new life so that I'm no longer the same. I, I'm not the person I used to be. I, I was far from God, but by God's grace, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he who once was far off has been brought near to Jesus, to God. And, and so that's who I am. And by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's who you are as well. That's just uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In chapter 2, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, though, the apostle Paul expands it. He doesn't really expand it. He just, he, he tells us the implications. He says, not only has he rescued you, the individual, but he's also brought us together as one body. That's who we are, First Norfolk. We're not a, a, a composite 
collection of, of, of shared stories or good ideas. We're not, uh, we're not the creation of individuals who 200 plus years ago got together and said, hey, it'd be a good, ta- good, good thing to get together and sing some songs and listen to some scripture. No, we are the very creation of Jesus Christ, who by his grace broke down the walls that separate us and made us one body. We are the people of God. We are the family of God. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are First Norfolk. That's who we are. Now, that's chapter 2, verses uh, 11 and following. Now, in chapter 3, Paul says, okay, now, all that's good stuff. And and, and, and in verse 1, he begins a prayer that he left at the end of chapter 1. He's been on a tangent and so he comes back to the prayer in chapter, one, in chapter 3, verse 1, but then he leaves it again. So in verse 2 of chapter 3, he goes off on another tangent. Not really a tangent, just explanation. Here, in, in verses 7 through 12, what he's doing is he's saying, now, uh, church believers in Ephesus, I want you to know who I am. I want you to understand what God has done in my life and, and what role and function he has given me. And, and church at Ephesus, I want you to understand who you are and, and, and the role and the function that God has given you. And by the way, church called Norfolk, God has given us this same function and this same purpose. So as we look at this passage, we need to understand a little bit about who we are and, 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 and our role and our function. We take it from a personal level and then we see the corporate level. And what I mean by that is we can see in these few verses, we can understand what each individual follower of Christ is supposed to be about, but we also see and understand what the church is supposed to be about. And really, they're the one and the same. As we look at the Apostle Paul, and, and if, I could just, if I could just walk us through this, go ahead and open your Bible, and, and, uh, and, and, and if I could just kind of explain some of this, and, and then, and then we'll, we'll look at the big picture. I'm doing this different than what I did at the other hours. I think this would be better. So uh, in, in verse 7, Paul says, okay, I became a minister of the gospel. Now, can I talk to you just for a second about that word minister? Minister is something, sometimes we look at minister and we think of an official position. Uh, so when I do a wedding, uh, I have to sign the marriage certificate. And it asks for my title. And I want to put Bubba just to see if they would get upset about it. But, but they asked for my title, and, and, and my, my response is minister or reverend. Or like I'll put on my daughter's uh, marriage certificate when she gets married in, in, in a few months. <laughs> in a few months. I'm going to put the high and holy reverend doctor. Something <laughs> like that. See what they say. Um, anyway, uh, so, so when we think of minister, sometimes we think of official position, official, like what I'm doing right here. Oh, you're the minister. Uh, people say, well, what do I call you? Uh, Eric. Oh, that, that, that's my name. And they, I had them say, well, should I call you father? No, no, no. I have four daughters. You're not one of them, right? I, <laughs> I'm not that. I, that is not I. And so, so, you know, when you think, think of, of, of official clergy type person, minister, But that's not what Paul's talking about in verse 7. When he says minister, he's simply saying servant. You see, that really is the defining 
the definition of the Greek word uh, there that's used there, diakonos, it's, it, it means to serve. It's a servant. And, and he's not talking about an official capacity. Certainly, we see in Ephesians chapter 4, in a few, few chapters, uh, a few verses, he's going to say that, that, that God gave, some, uh, gave to the church some to be apostles and prophets and teachers, pastors and evangelists. And certainly, that's, those are official positions in the church. But, but here, minister is, is simple. It means servant. And, and so as, as we look at what Paul is saying, he's saying, now God, by his grace, and by the way, who has received the grace of God? If you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? You got the whole load of hay. You have received the grace of God. Full measure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. You have received the grace of God, okay? If you're a follower of Jesus, the gift of grace that Paul talks about is the gift of grace that you've received. And, and, and that gift of grace, once you've received it, it compels you to service, minister, okay? So Paul says, all right, so, so God has changed my life. He's transformed me. He's, he's given me this grace that has rescued me, made me brand new, transformed my life, made me a new creature in Christ. And so now I've got a new way of living. It's serving. And, and we'll, we'll double back on that in a moment. But then, then he goes on, he says, so, so in this special way, God's called me to serve. And that is to, uh, uh, to proclaim Verse 8, proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light or to make known what is the plan of the mystery which was hidden uh, ages uh, in God but now has been made known through Christ. All right, so, so what's he saying there? Well, in verses 8 and 9, he's saying, okay, so specifically I serve God by proclaiming the unsearchable riches, by telling people that they who are lost, who are far from God, can be brought near to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus has paved the way for every sinner who trusts in Jesus, they can be brought near to God. They can be brought into the family of God. So today, we understand that personally. Can I just tell you, though, and, and if I could just take a moment, I, I want to tell you that, that for many of us, we have determined that we're brought into the family of God because we've gone through some religious exercise, or we've done some religious duty, or we're attending a religious institution. Can I tell you that there is absolutely nothing further from the truth? You are not brought into the family of God because you walk into a building. You are not brought into the family of God because you get together with a group of people. You are not brought into the family of God because you do religious stuff. Even to the point of being baptized in water. That does not bring you into the family of God. No, the only way that you or I can be brought into the family of God is when we understand our sin has separated us irrevocably from God. But Jesus came to break that irrevocable distance by bridging the distance himself, that Jesus came and he died for your sin, for my sin upon a cross. And when I turn from my sin and trust in him then and only then, regardless what religious institution I have claimed name of, only when I place my faith in Jesus can I then 
be transformed. And it's God's grace that transforms me. It's not my work. God's the one who takes the initiative to awaken my soul, to see my need for Jesus. He is the one who takes the initiative to pour his spirit within me so that I might have new birth, new life transformed. I'm changed. I'm not who I used to be. I'm a different man altogether. And if that has not been your experience, friends, can I just humbly suggest that perhaps you're not yet a follower of Jesus? You might say, well, I've been here for 40 years. That's not, that's, that's not on the application, guys. Well, I've, I've been, I've been uh, faithful to read my Bible every day. I read through the Bible uh, all of it in one year. That's good. That's not on the application, guys. The only way that you are part of God's family is through faith in Jesus. Now, that's, that is the mystery that was hidden for ages. It's the fact that God had a specific plan for people to come into the family. And that plan involved one thing, his grace, brought to us by Jesus Christ. So um, Paul says, okay, so, so uh, here's the thing. I have been given this role of, of, of proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ and, the, and, 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 and to bring to light this mystery, the, the plan of this mystery hidden for ages, um, but now it's revealed uh, in, in Jesus. So, so that's, that's what uh, 8 and 9 are talking about. But then Paul goes on and and. And he says in verse 10, and, and again, let me, let me read it. In verse 10, he says, uh, this is the purpose, the purpose for which he proclaimed and brought to light or made known. Verse 10, to the intent or for this purpose that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. And then look at who making it to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. So, so here's the purpose. The purpose is, so he's preaching all this stuff. And he's sharing all this stuff, the good news that, that any sinner can be saved by God's grace. That's the good news. All right. Now, now then he says, now the purpose is that the church should be the declarer of God's wisdom in all the universe, to principalities and powers, even in the heavenly places. So he tells us the purpose of the church here. Not only does he speak to our purpose individually, but he speaks to the purpose of the church as well, the function of the church. Do you realize that this church, First Norfolk, our function is the same as the function for the church in Ephesus? And that function is to be the declarer of the manifold wisdom of God. Now, as we unpack all this, um, uh, there, there's a big idea that I want us to get, and then, then we'll kind of apply it in two ways, all right? So, so the first big idea from this passage is that it's the... It, it, it's the unsearchable riches of Christ that satisfy us completely. It's, it's, it's the unsearchable riches. Now, uh, this flies in the face of much of what we think and certainly how we live. See, we think and we, we live as though 
satisfaction comes by what we do or who we're with or what we can get. And, and, and so we begin to think in terms of satisfaction, like Tennessee actually winning the game against Florida instead of losing the game against Florida. I appreciate the phone calls and the letters seeing if I was committing suicide last night. I appreciate that. As you can tell, I survived the loss. Uh, University of Tennessee, in case you didn't know, lost on the last play of the game to the Florida Gators. And uh, that was, uh, well, you could tell there were demons in the air. That's all I'm saying. It was a demonic force that swept away. And No, I'm just kidding. It was the swamp. I mean, if that doesn't sound demonic, I don't know what does. And I'm just kidding. Y'all don't know whether to laugh or cry. But anyway, um, uh, as, as, we, as we begin to think about what, what satisfies, I think this is what gets us in trouble. I think one of the reasons so many people are, are, are living with an attitude of discontent is because they've forgotten that what satisfies us is not who we're with or what we get or what we do. But as followers of Christ, what satisfies us is Jesus. That's it. That's it. So, and we're going to unpack this each week, this, this big picture idea. We're going to unpack it each week. Today, I just want, to, I just want us to see a couple of things that, that flow. The unsearchable riches of Christ satisfy us because, first and foremost, um, we live to serve God and, and the gospel. See, as a follower of Jesus, we're just like the Apostle Paul. We have been called to be servants of the gospel. You and I, all of us, we've been called to serve God and serve the gospel. Can I just, can I tell you, and, and this, I know it's not going to be a shock because you've heard me say it before, but this church does not exist to serve you. And, and if you think it does, you are mistaken. This church exists to serve God. This church does not exist to make you happy. This church exists to make God smile. Now, a couple of things about that. When I say stuff like that, immediately you kind of bow up and you say, well, that's not, I can't believe you, of course this church. No, 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 no. I'm talking about purpose. Uh, there's a good result. When we serve God, certainly we're going to serve others because one of the things it says in the Bible to do is if we're going to serve God, then we're going to love others, and we're going to love others extravagantly the way God has loved us. And if we're going to love others extravagantly the way God has loved us, then we make it our business to serve one another. By the way, part of the problem in church is when you come in and you think everybody's supposed to serve you, when in reality the perspective needs to be flipped. You need to be an active participant of the body of Christ, and you need to seek how that you might serve God by serving others. Stop thinking about you. Start thinking about God. Start focusing on what Jesus is done and determined to live your life accordingly, then I can promise you, you're going to start liking church a lot more. I, I think what happens in church is we get this idea about church and, and, and it's the wrong headed idea. It's not a biblical idea, but it's an idea that we've fostered and festered in our soul. And, and so when 
When, when our expectations of the church uh, don't match what, what actually happens, when, when, when the church gets uh, to a place that doesn't behave the way that I want it to behave, then we start saying, I don't like the church. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Really? Has somebody come up? I, I don't like this church. I don't think I'll come back. They've been a member for a while. I don't like the church. I, 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 don't, I don't think I'll come back. You know what the bravest question a pastor can ask when somebody says something like that? Why don't you like the church? Because I'm not going to say it's nine times out of ten, but it's pretty high. When they say, I don't like the church, what they're really saying is, I don't like you. But you know what? That's okay too. See, from my perspective, my job is not for you to like me. I love it when you do. (laughs) But that's not my job. See, my job is the same as Paul's job, which is the same as your job, which is the same as the church's job. My job is to make God smile, not you. And your job, see, if you, if you're dissatisfied with the church, if you're dissatisfied with First Norfolk, then you need to adjust your perspective. One of the things that I've discovered in my long tenure as pastor is that the people who are the most active in serving God are the least dissatisfied in the church. I'm not talking about serving your, your, your friends or your, 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 your ideas or your ambitions or your preferences. I'm talking about serving God. Those who are active, actively engaged, pers- persistent, um, serve God. They're, they're the ones that... I mean, and, and by the way, you say, well, the church is doing bad things. Have you ever been to a family reunion? You're talking about well, I, I, people. People are 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 bad at that church. What? You know, really? You, I mean, this is family. And you're saying you're going to divorce yourself from this family because somebody acted weird. Again, have you been to a family reunion? It gets weird. In some families, it gets weird real quick. And by the way, if you're at a family reunion and you don't think it's weird, that's because you're the one that's weird. <laughs> that's, that's what church is, guys. Yes. We're imperfect people. We're going to do some strange things. But, but if you come into church and you determine My job in First Norfolk is not for First Norfolk to make me happy, but my job in First Norfolk is to serve God. Live for His honor. Live for His fame. As Paul wrote in in Ephesians 1.6, we are to be to the praise of His glory, not our own. If you and I would start living our lives with our focus on Him first, 
we would find a lot greater satisfaction as the church fulfills her purpose. By the way, the church's purpose is to display the wisdom of God, and the way we display the wisdom of God is by helping people see the way to relationship with God. You see, we are here to serve God, and we serve God by serving the gospel to others. Can I ask you, can I please ask you, why in the world Would God leave you here on this earth so that you can learn how to shoot a 69 or a 70 in golf? So that you can make another million dollars? Did he leave you here so that you could get an RV and travel the country? Did he leave you here so that you can uh, get one more rung up the corporate ladder? Why did he leave you here? He left you here to serve him and to serve him by sharing the gospel with others. That's not the only way we serve him, but it's certainly the preeminent way that the scripture talks about. And we're supposed to help people who are far from God find life in Christ. That's Paul being a minister of the gospel, a servant of the gospel. If we're a prisoner of Christ, then we are automatically a servant of the gospel. You and I are supposed to be telling people how that they can be saved. We're supposed to show people this wisdom of God that says you can come to faith in Christ, not by what you do, but by what Jesus has already done for you. Here is good news. So why are we sharing the good news? I think, I think the key for us serving God by serving the gospel is understanding the nature of these riches. And the riches, is, the riches are in the relationship, not in the religion. And see, that's, that, that's really important for us to make that distinction because we get so confused about things. And, and, and I've, I've got just a little thing. All right, so I've got all these rings, and all these rings belong to me. And all these rings have one purpose. And their purpose is to let people know that I am married. So um, each ring has, you know, this one is made out of tungsten. I like that one. This one's heavy. Uh, That's that's one I've been wearing now. And and these two, uh, these two rings, they're made out of some rubberized material, and that's what fishermen wear when they go fishing. Or if you're lifting weights or something, it, it, you know, it, it, it'll, it, it's not metal, so that's good stuff. And then this ring, this one right here, this small one, it, it's made out of gold. And it's got a lot of scratches on it, inside and out. And it's really too big for my finger, although it used to fit pretty good. And this is the oldest ring I own, because it's the ring I got when I got married. Now, why am I wearing a tungsten one rather than this one? I mean, this one's gold. But the reason is because, bottom line, the ring, it's not irrelevant, but the ring is not the significant thing. It's about my relationship with Edie. See, when I when I talk about my most meaningful things, I'm not going to talk about a ring. I'm going to be talking about my wife. 
I'm going to let the people know that what I value is not a ring. What I value is Edie, my wife. I, I want people to know that Edie is more important than a ring. And the ring is okay. I, I like it. I wear it. But, but the ring is, is not as big a deal as the relationship. The ring only represents the relationship. Now, as we look at the, these riches of Christ, what we need to understand is the riches are not about religion. It's not about the works that we do. It's not about the efforts that we put forth. The, the riches are the relationship. It's that we have fellowship with God. We have friendship with God. We've been brought into the family of God through Jesus Christ. We know God. He knows us. And everything changes because of that. And, and by the way, the more we focus in on Jesus, the more we see his beauty and his glory, his majesty, his perfection, his holiness, his, 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 his love and his grace and his mercy and his comfort, the more we focus in on Jesus, the more we have a passion to talk about him. By the way, you do realize that you talk about what you value. Does anybody know that you value Jesus? Not your church, not your Sunday school class, not your, not your own personal private time. Do they know that you value Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one who can change a life? Have they ever heard you talk about Jesus? If someone were to go to your Facebook page, who do they think you value by reading your Facebook posts? Is Jesus even part of that equation? It's Sunday morning. And on Saturday, you had something you valued, perhaps, take place. That is college football. I guarantee you... That for some of us, when we go to work, people know who our favorite sports teams are. Why would they know that? Because we talk about them. We talk about our sports teams. We talk about our politics. We talk about our favorite things. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm just saying, where is Jesus in that equation? See, the riches are in the relationship, but do we even value the relationship? The relationship changes everything for us, changes everything for our church. It gives us purpose. It lets us understand why we're here. We're here to serve God and to serve the gospel to others. And, and so that means that the more, we, the more we allow Jesus to soak into our soul, when we focus on him as a church and as followers of Jesus, the more we're going to value Jesus, the more we're going to talk about Jesus. I do think it's important what, Jesus, uh, what Paul writes in, in verse 12. He says that it's through Jesus that we have boldness and confidence. Now, boldness and confidence for what? Boldness and confidence that this world is not bigger than our God and that our God is with us and for us because we are his children. 
So here's my question for you today and, and really my commitment, uh, request for a commitment. Um, last week or last month, uh, we had these little cards and it said, uh, uh, I will share the gospel with one person in the month of August. At the end of each pew, there are those cards again, but they don't say August. Now they say September. Our goal as a church has been in August, September, and October, in those three months, we pray and, and, and desire to see 100 people who are far from God find new life in Christ through you talking about Jesus with others, sharing the riches of Christ with them. And so I'm asking you to make a commitment for the month of September. In the month of September, I will share the gospel with one person. So right now, take the, take the cards at the end of the pew, pass them down, everybody get one, and if you will make that commitment. And by the way, can I just can I tell you this? The expectation of God himself for you as a member of First Baptist Norfolk, the expectation of God himself on you is that you share the gospel with others, that you serve God by serving the gospel. And so I challenge you and encourage you to take that commitment and make that commitment. For the next few weeks, I will share the gospel with one person. We're going to do it again in October. If you hadn't figured it out, every month we're going to make a commitment. And the words say the same except for last time was August, this time is September. What do you think next time is going to say? October. Y'all are great. Yeah. So just expect it. But make the commitment. Your commitment is to value Jesus more than anything else. That means you're going to talk about Jesus with people who are far from God. You want to serve God. You want to make him smile. That means that you're going to share the wisdom of God with those who are lost in their own chaotic darkness. Make the commitment. And the good news that we have is that because of Jesus, we dwell in permanent intimacy with the living God. That we're not alone. And in the face of chaotic moments and days, we live in that intimacy with the God who is the good shepherd to us, who takes care of us, who has rescued us from sin itself and rescues us from bondage to fear. Because you're part of God's family, you can live with confidence and boldness in this difficult day. So live that way. All right, now, would you bow your heads? As we come to a time of response, I'm going to encourage you, if you make that commitment, if you'll come and you put the cards down here on the altar um, as, as a picture of that commitment, a public, a public commitment, a public display of your personal commitment as part of First Norfolk. Over the next few moments, my prayer is that God would saturate your heart with the vision of Jesus, that you would see him in all of his glory and all of his beauty, of all of his majesty, that you would begin to be enraptured by Jesus. And he'd take hold of your heart and he would show you again, fresh and new, how he has overwhelmed all the circumstances that swirl in your soul, that 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 create a, a disease of despair to uh, be awakened in you. You have God as your father, and you live under his care. All because of Jesus.
So, Father, in these next few moments, will you saturate our soul with a vision of Jesus? May you help us live in boldness and confidence that Jesus has made available to us, that we are content and comforted by your care, O oh Lord, so that we can declare today that we are no longer slaves to fear because we are children of God. And may that be our declaration as we think on Jesus who brought us into God's family. May we declare with confidence, with a soul soaking in the majesty of our King. Rejoice that we are no longer slaves to doubt or confusion or chaos. No longer slaves to fear. For we are children in the family of God because of Jesus. Now may, give us the courage to make our commitments today and be glorified as we worship you in this moment. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray.